I'm Catherine. I'm Nicole. I'm V. Welcome to our third and final podcast titled Pure Lunacy. So you might have thought we were talking about the moon, but we're not. We're talking about globalization, corruption, and the commodification of human bodies in sports. An example of globalization in sport is soccer. Though many different versions of this game exist, English association football has become dominant. The game was spread across the globe through colonization during the era of the British Empire. The expansion of this game wasn't limited to the British Empire, but also went to places that were in contact with the UK through trade. So soccer has become a global sport in which there's a lot of money invested and a lot of capital made from it. So another interesting aspect of the relationship between sports and globalization is the development of a form of global culture. So this phenomenon has occurred as sports popularity has been on the rise and as populations as a whole have had more leisure time to watch these games. So as the popularity of sports has risen, so has the associated capital. Uh, Something that's really unique about this relationship is that in the past, trade promoted sport, like we saw with soccer as it was spread through um, colonization and through trade. Um, Now it seems as though sport promotes trade. So this has evolved into an important source of capital. Uh, Team apparel is sold, sports bets are made, and large companies sponsor events like the World Cup or the Super Bowl um, at halftime. It's a big deal for companies to have their uh, commercials played and to have their commercials played during breaks, they pay a lot of money because they know that these games gain a wide viewership, a wide audience. And then this feeds into the reason this trend has occurred, which is technology. So development and increased accessibility of radio, television, and even podcasts like this one um, just over the past century has been integral to the development of fan bases and people around the world that are just socialized and knowledgeable about a particular sport. They know how to respond at sporting events when these groups face off. So they know what to wear, what chance to sing, what penalties are called, and in some cases profanity to sling around, <laughs> um, which plays an important role in the evolution of this sort of global culture because a large and diverse group of people now share a common piece of knowledge and they can communicate and connect about this particular topic, which can expand to broader connections between these groups of people that are all around the world. A historical example of this connection is the Olympics. It existed in ancient times. Um, in Greece and then was recently revived and has become an important global event that almost everyone is aware of. Um, Whenever the summer or winter games come around, everybody's talking about it. It's on TV whenever you go to restaurants or whenever you go out, but it's not just in the United States. It's all around the world and this gives a global, it creates a global community and it gives them a common focal point of entertainment to connect over. And like we talked about earlier, this promotes um, stronger bonds between the international community because they're watching the same program. And by watching the same program, they can feel the same emotions, even though they might not be cheering for the same team, they're still responding to the same events And by watching these events, it gives them a topic that they can debate 
on with each other. They can agree, disagree, talk about maybe a decision that a judge made during the gymnastics competition that they thought was poor. And it's really interesting too because not only do they have this one particular event that they watched, a program that they watched during a set time period, but it also connects them over this long-term interest in a particular sport. So somebody that has always watched gymnastics, always loved gymnastics in the United States, can connect with a person of similar interest in France, which is amazing because this wasn't possible before without technology and the globalization of this sport. Because now, two people in France and in the United States that probably wouldn't have ever interacted uh, previously have been connected through technology. And whenever I'm talking about this, I mean uh, through social media, people post things and are able to comment, um, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, forums. There's just endless opportunities to connect with people around the world. Uh, TikTok is a really popular one. Um, and so this French person and this American are able to discuss how they feel about this particular sport, and that just builds a connection, which is really interesting because it's all just because of sports. Though it has many benefits, the globalization of sport does not come without consequences. Um, corruption is rampant in organizations like FIFA and the Olympic Committee, and humans become commodified in their receiving compensation for their likeness that is depicted in video games or on the back of jerseys. And this issue is something that we're going to elaborate on in this podcast. So I'll be talking about the commodification of athletes. Athletes, they often commodify themselves and with the globalization of international sport and capitalism, this is highly effective and it makes people a lot of money. So for example, brand deals and partnerships or endorsements that rely on individual stardom are very lucrative rather than ties to a particular team, sport, or nation. While, of course, that is essential with international sports, you can go further now. Often, players do not even have to play for the team of their own nation. They can switch teams and act as a separate entity and have more autonomy that way. Of course, a player's country of origin may still take pride in a player or the supporters of the team they play for currently may support them because of the team connections. However, sports stars have become more removed from the actual national or team solidarity of the sport, and instead they can be their own celebrity. The sport may act as a means to this stardom, but the players themselves operate as a commodity. They sell their image, their likeness, their affiliation, and support for whatever organization, and they're also viewed as a commodity by the people and by the international organizations. For example, Olympic athletes can use the accomplishments that they made as Olympians as a way to get sponsorships, partnerships, and brand deals. However, it is a pretty rigorous process, especially for authoritarian regimes and how they discipline their Olympians. Additionally, something interesting is how colonial relationships persist to this day. For example, many Brazilian players go to play for Portugal and many Algerian players play for France in soccer. In both of these instances, there was a previous colonial relationship and the countries continue to exploit the colonized, previously colonized country to this day. Of course, these players choose to play for the other country because they're paid more. And that is a reasonable rationale for the players, yet the relationship still exhibits an exploitative nature. 
And there are also issues of nationalism and race when it comes to globalized sport. A player may be used to bolster nationalist sentiment and pride, and they become an icon or figurehead for a particular place during their time there, and in this way they can be seen and used as a commodity. The player gets them more money, and in return plays well and makes their own money. However, it is interesting when those players do not play well and happen to be a racial minority, then the player is used as a scapegoat and ostracized by the home community. Suddenly, they are not a useful acquisition, but rather a threat to the success and pride of the team and the country. The discourse around these players when they are racial minorities is often extremely racially charged. For example, when three black players, Bukayo Saka, Marcus Rashford, and Jaden Sancho, missed penalty kicks for England, there was substantial racial abuse aimed at these players. And because the players are seen as commodities, they can be discarded in public sentiment as easily as anything else. They were a bad investment, and the racism compounded with this view allows such a reaction to take place, and these players are only valued so far as they are profitable. And the commodification of sport and athletes has wide-ranging impacts. There is so much money to be made since it is very highly lucrative because of capitalism for the governing institutions, teams, and players. However, there are also adverse effects as seen in the treatment of the players and corruption, and that will be discussed later in the podcast. Alrighty, everybody. Today, I'm going to be talking about the corruption that goes on within international sports organizations. So let's get down to it. We had our top two most influential international sports organizations in the entire world. And you guessed it, the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, and the Federation de Football Association, or FIFA. So basically, there comes the idea that they are this peace-promoting political force within the entire world. But in actuality, they really are not. And we're going to get right into the good stuff. So this idea that international sports competitions promote peace between nations has its origins in the legend of the Olympic truce that prevailed during the ancient Greek Olympic Games. And now we have this modern version of this association between athletic competition and the suspension or elimination of military conflict, which appeared at the end of the 19th century due to the effort of Pierre de Coubertin, who was actually the founder of the modern Olympic movement. He had this inspired idea that the games are a transcendental celebration of the human family whose universal appeal somehow creates a pacifying effect on the government and regimes that send their athletes to the global festival. This great rhetorical achievement of the IOC that they use today is to have created and sustained the myth that the Olympic movement is a peace movement. This idea that sport confers important benefits on modern societies actually originates from Victorian England. They had this doctrine that physical fitness was essential to both individual health and to the welfare of the body politic. This creed, like the Olympic doctrine itself, continues to shape our modern thinking about the value and necessity of sports as a social good. And actually, Victorian England was the one that taught Cooperton the potential value of competitive sport. He added his own sociological speculations about the source of sports beneficial effects to both national communities and international relations. 
If we're going to view it at a small scale, he said that the sportive intercourse between male members of different social strata could diminish class conflicts. And if we're going to look at it in a larger scale, he said that athletic competitions between representatives of different nations could exert a quote-unquote pacifying effect on intercultural relations. Unlike the international sports functionaries who would later appropriate his doctrine of peace through sport, Cooperton actually thought rationally about sports' presumed effects on human temperament and behavior. He believed sport could mitigate what he called the intensive character of a pulsating and complicated modern civilization. But Cooperton's prominent successors in the IOC and FIFA have not analyzed sport's effects in this manner, preferring instead to believe the peace-creating effects of global sports entertainment are self-evident. So let's dive into some arguments against these international sports organizations being these peace-promoting movements. So one of the big arguments that they have on the side of that they are peace-promoting movements is this cause-and-effect relationship between Olympiads and the absence or reduction of armed conflict. The fatal defect of this argument is the fact that the Olympic century that began in 1896 turned out to be the bloodiest in human history. An Austrian zoologist by the name of Konrad Lorenz claimed that international sport has an important cathartic effect, but in an article I read by Mr. Huberman, he argued that this theory is pure speculation and suggests that Lorenz knew little about Olympic-level sport. He said that the assertion that Olympic competition abolishes national hostilities and produces chivalry and fair play presents a selective and therefore biased assessment of what happens at and as a result of an Olympiad. Also, for example, Lorenz published his book just as the anabolic steroid epidemic was beginning to spread throughout certain Olympic Games, where by 1968, the Mexico City Olympic Games were awash in performance-enhancing drugs. Still captive to the Victorian doctrine that we talked about earlier, that sports build moral character, Lorenz could not imagine Olympic sport to be the ethic-free zone it has often been. The fact that Lorenz was willing to dress up his idealism about Olympic sport as social science confirms once again the effectiveness of the IOC-sponsored propaganda that presents Olympic ritual pomp and circumstance as the authentic trappings of a real peace movement. There is actually far better documentation on the ethical and political problems that have plagued international sports organizations that claim to make humanitarian contributions to the global community. However, many people will be unaware of the systematic problems due to the enduring global appeal of international sports bodies that offer pseudo-religious rituals of global reconciliation along with great sports entertainment. This mass emotional gratifications of Olympic ritual in particular have been widely embraced as a peace-promoting mass therapy for the entire world. So we're going to talk about something that most people, like I've discussed, are unaware of those systematic problems. And to be honest, I was also unaware of them. So, 
The IOC actually has a long record of collaboration with authoritarian and repressive political regimes. First off, we got the 1936 Berlin basically Nazi Olympic Games. This was a disgraceful episode in modern Olympic history and was used as a propaganda coup for the Hitler regime. In both cases, the FIFA and IOC elites believed they were contributing to the cause of peace, but it was not a peace that would last. This IOC-sponsored event still serves as a model that has never been repudiated. The IOC's policy remains that of what Huberman calls, quote, a moral universalism, end quote. The traditional Olympic dogma that all human tribes must take part in the games, no matter how repressive or inhumane their governments may be. Second, we have the 1968 Mexico City Olympic Games. It was awarded to a one-party pseudo-democratic third world government, which confronted massive anti-government demonstrations for months before the games that were supposed to legitimatize the regime. And what actually occurred before the Olympic Games was the Telatelochul massacre that claimed an estimated 300 lives. Third, we have the 1980 Moscow Olympiad, which was awarded to the Soviets in 1974 after they threatened to leave the, quote, Olympic family after failing to secure the 1976 games that went to Montreal. Fourth, we have the 1988 Seoul Olympic Games, which was awarded by the IOC in 1981, one year after the South Korean military government had carried out a political massacre in the southern part of the country. And we still recently have IOC's collaboration with authoritarian and repressive political regimes today. And the 2014 Winter Olympic Games and 2018 FIFA World Cup was awarded to Russia, and that's under Vladimir Putin's regime. And we understand that that regime is quite repressive, not as much as it was during the Stalin era, but still. And the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, which is ruled by an absolute monarchy. The amoral universalism that I discussed earlier of the IOC has continued during the post-Samarache period that commenced in 2001, along with the awarding of the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games, which were presented as an example of the IOC's politically productive diplomacy. In 2008, IOC President Roger declared the Beijing Games would be a, quote, catalyst for change and will open a country, which used to be a mysterious one to much of the world, end quote. A prediction that political development in post-Olympic China have not confirmed, actually. Roger invoked the IOC's traditional and contradictory claim that it manages to be both apolitical and politically effective at the same time. While the IOC is, quote, not a political organization, it does, quote, advance the agenda of human rights, he claimed. However, what distinguishes the IOC from more principled international organizations is that violations of its, quote, values by host countries do not result in sanctions or any other consequences that might modify authoritarian behavior. 
this policy of amoral universalism is entirely compatible with the fundamental principles of Olympiism that appear in the Olympic Charter, whose paragraph 5 actually specifies that discrimination with regard to a country on the ground of politics is incompatible with belonging to the Olympic movement. It is this policy that negates Roguet's claim that the IOC works to advance the agenda of human rights. Now I'm going to be talking about the basically autocratic leaders in the IOC. We have our top two contenders, Avery Brundage and Juan Antonio Samarache. First, we got Avery Brundage. Before he actually served as president of the IOC, Brundage was president of the American Olympic Committee, and he played the key role in defeating an anti-Nazi coalition composed of Catholics, Jews, and unions that campaigned to keep the U.S. out of the 1936 Berlin, basically Nazi, Olympic Games. He was a Germanophile, and his unshakable belief that, quote, the Games were the most important international institution of the century, a force for peace and reconciliation among peoples, end quote, mandated the inclusion of Nazi Germany, regardless of the nature of the regime. Then, of course, Brundage became president of the IOC from 1952 to 1972. He stated in 1965 that the Olympic movement was, quote, perhaps the greatest social force in the world, end quote. Three years later, and five days after the pre-Olympic Telocholoche massacre in Mexico City, carried out by the Mexican army in 1968, Brundage declared that the, quote, essence of the Olympic ideal maintains its purity as an oasis where correct human relations and concepts of moral character still prevail, end quote. For a true believer like Brundage, the tension between his fantasy of an Olympic oasis and the far less ideal conditions prevailing in the real world of political conflicts and government-sponsored crimes produced something akin to a hysterical denial of reality, one that has often recurred in what Olympic officials are and are not willing to say. And actually, the IOC has never once acknowledged this or let alone commemorated the massacre. The IOC's inflated estimates of the political benefits of their Olympiad substitute hyperbole for more reasoned and less sentimental assessments that might call their political value into question. These exaggerations deflect attention away from the IOC's long record of collaboration with authoritarian and repressive political regimes. Then we do this huge 180 where we have the new IOC president, Michael Killianen, who served from 1972 to 1980, where he actually opposed the admission of South Africa into the Olympic movement until the apartheid had been abolished. But he was gotten rid of, and then Juan Antonio Samarache, who occupied the IOC presidency during the period of 1980 to 2001, brought with him from Franco Spain an authoritarian style that facilitated the bribery of IOC members damaged the prospects for curbing doping, and produced a generation of complacent appointees who were eventually instructed to address the IOC president as excellency. 
He regarded the awarding of Olympic decorations to dictators and autocrats as an expression of the political neutrality the IOC had to maintain in order to preserve the universality of the movement. The IOC had to maintain in order to preserve the universality of the movement. Y'all remember earlier when I said how Juan Antonio Samarache damaged the prospects for curbing doping? Well, ironically, he claimed that doping equals death and that the IOC is carrying out a decisive struggle against the doping evil. The fact is, he had never taken serious steps against the doping evil and it was effectively concealed from his audience. Samarache's inductees into the IOC have included many ethically compromised or dubious candidates for service on an international body. Yes, 10 of the more obscure IOC members were forced to resign in 1999 in the wake of the 2002 Salt Lake City Winter Olympics bribery scandal. But still, less attention has been paid to more significant cases involving various kinds of legal and moral corruptions. Three of his inductees include Major General Francis Nianguizhou, who served the murderous Ugandan dictator Idi Amin as army commander, and he actually went on the radio to warn people of the Bogishu district that any village found to be sheltering guerrillas would be destroyed immediately. And guess what? His induction didn't provoke a single objection. And then we have South Korean CIA operative and Taekwondo entrepreneur Kim Yujong and Indonesian timber magnate Bob Hassan. And both of them were actually both of whom have since served prison time for corruption in their respective countries. So I know we talked a lot about the ethical problems that go on within the IOC, but let's not forget the other influential international sports organization, FIFA, because it definitely has its own problems as well. In October 2010, came published reports that two of its executive committee members had been willing to sell their votes for assigning the 2018 and 2022 World Cup venues that coincidentally went to Russia and Qatar. Both of those people were suspended two months later. At the end of November 2010, three more members of the executive committee were Im implicated in having taken payoffs from the once mighty but eventually bankrupted marketing agency ISL, which had sold advertising rights to the World Cup. Some of the international sports grandees have belonged simultaneously to the IOC and other major sport federations, demonstrating that the broad appeal of the autocratic administrative style has been shared by the major global sports bodies. Primo Nebbiolo and Joseph Blatter are primary examples of interlocking spheres of power. The global autocrats have also played cleverly upon the theme of peace and harmony by invoking the theme of family. Shout out to my man Vendiso, Furies 5, which has become a favorite rhetorical device to convey a sense of unity. For example, when the president of the World Handball Federation, Hassan Mustafa, was caught 
profiting handsomely from the exercise of his office in 2010, he angrily rejected outside scrutiny on the grounds that, quote, we are a handball family. If anyone has a problem, they can always come to me about it, end quote. But behind closed doors, he was a patriarch who was entitled to get his own way. Another example is in 1933, Rimet, who was the president of FIFA, had expanded the concept of football family to include, I hope you guessed it, Nazi Germany and its chivalrous football players. Following the French team's match against a German team in 1933, Rimet, quote, admonished the members of the French delegation to spread the good word of the new Germany upon their return to France in order to counteract false ideas and misunderstandings of the Third Reich. And as I've already mentioned, if you were paying attention, three years later, the IOC and its band of Franco-German Nazi sympathizers brought the Olympic Games to Hitler's Germany. This megalomaniacal syndrome of leaders of these organizations best explains the authoritarianism, the patriarchal system of management, and the frequent socializing of federation dictators with real ones. It explains the sports autocrats' delusional belief in their ability to create peace in a conflict-ridden world and the longing for a Nobel Peace Prize. Their global federations have long served as offshore enterprise zones for many compromised and self-serving people who have recruited themselves into national and international sports federations. To achieve an international visibility, they could not have achieved in any other way. In conclusion, with the arguments I have stated above, their motives have seldom included a determination to promote peace between nations. Though, disclaimer, not to ruin all international sports organizations or make you feel bad for watching the Olympics or FIFA games because those are great matches and they're great things to watch and they promote this sense of nationalism that rallies people behind countries. But also just be aware of what's going on behind the scenes And just kind of have that in the back of your mind when you're maybe watching another game. But don't worry, you can still enjoy the Olympics and FIFA World Cup. For my section, I'll be talking about politics in sport and how sports and politics are mixed forever. So we should probably get used to it. For example, we hear about Jesse Owens sprinting in front of Adolf Hitler and pissing him off. We also hear about Muhammad Ali throwing his Olympic gold medal into the Ohio River. And we hear about Colin Kaepernick taking a knee rather than standing for the national anthems. Of course, most people agree that politics should be kept out of the sport, but the relationship between sports and politics operates at many levels. For example, many sports were designed to enforce social needs, like the Japanese martial art. Um, It was meant to celebrate spiritual development and social ordering and we also have um cricket which is an instrument through which victorians sought to teach the ruling class to rule and the plebs or the poor people to obey the ruling class some people ask why nba 
players take a knee when the national anthem is playing, it's because they're tired of experiencing racism and they're trying to make a political point, a, a social point, and they are sickened by the violence they are seeing from law, enfor- law enforcement officers shooting black people or kneeling on George Floyd's neck, and this institutionalized racism has been happening in the U.S. for centuries. But now we live in an era where cases of police brutality are being documented with smartphones and pro- and broadcast around the world. So this changes the equation because while these type of things have been happening for a long time, they were never this easy to document. Muhammad Ali also made a social and political point when he defied the authorities and his rejection of the expected role of a black man in a racist society. He also encouraged other people to refuse to fight in the Vietnam War despite the authorities stripping him of his world title and his boxing license. He quoted, I quoted, said, I don't have to be what you want me to be. In today's modern society, famous athletes and NFLs, NBAs, all those sporting organizations uses social media such as Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to promote social justice for racial, gender, and social inequalities. Even though sports have continued to struggle on the national level, intervention through sport has also occurred at several points in international relations. So in 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, which prompted President Jimmy Carter to call for a boycott of the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. And this garnered attention from allies such as Great Britain, Canada, West Germany, Chile, and Haiti. So in total, about 65 countries refused to participate in the Games. And the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate also passed measures to approve the boycott. While sport has been used as a tool for the international stage, some presidents have also passed specific policies that that addresses issues within national sport. So in his 2004 State of the Union address, President George W. Bush highlighted the illegal use of PEDs or performance-enhancing drugs that was becoming popular in American sport. And he quoted, he, he stated, to help Children make the right choices. They need good examples. I call on team owners, union representatives, coaches, and players to take the lead to send the right signal to get tough and to get rid of steroids now. And in that same year, the Anabolic Steroid Control Act was signed into law. And in 2005, Congress held hearings on the use of AS in baseball. Public policy and discourse about steroids soon became more visible and impactful in the sport field. So looking at sport through a political lens means we are looking at who has access to sport and who does not. While sport is often regarded as an equal opportunity, it can also only work if this is a conscious effort that is made to ensure that all have equal access. Thus, to understand the politics of sport is to inform policy on sport access. Lastly, I wanted to discuss how cricket has increasingly become a political sport 
in a reversal of power which has moved away from the West, the sport has become dominated by a post-colonial country, India. In order to become rich in cricket, you have to support or play with India. India has also weaponized cricket against its rival Pakistan in order to isolate the country in the sport. India refuses to play Pakistan, has not engaged in any bilateral series with Pakistan for the last eight years, and has even banned Pakistani players from the Indian Premier League. Furthermore, India has often asked Pakistan to change its foreign and security policies in order to resume cricket matches between the countries and is using the sport to influence political change in Pakistan. So, in conclusion, there's a reason why politicians are asked about their favorite sport teams. There's a reason why national and Olympic champions visit the White House. There are also reasons why some teams and individual athletes have chosen not to attend those events. And for better or for worse, this has brought sports and politics at the highest levels to a permanent intersection in the national and international stage. As for my sources, I got them from CNN, BBC, The Guardian News, and other legitimate news sources. So how has globalization impacted sports? Well, I think a really relevant example is what we talked about earlier through uh, trade and capitalism. So we see a lot of the players, commodities, and how trade was able to spread soccer around the globe along with colonization. Yeah, so I think that that has made a really global culture surrounding soccer and one that is very lucrative. So all countries are going to take part in it, which creates this common like behavior surrounding soccer in which you like really invest in the players, even if they may not necessarily be making as much money right. as those, like the coaches or something. <laughs> Since there's a global nature surrounding soccer, all these countries wanted to get involved with it. So they built this entire international sports organization, one in particular, which is one of the most influential sports organizations that I talked about previously, is FIFA. And what I've mentioned before is how corrupt FIFA had gotten and how basically globalization impacted it through the intertwining of these authoritarian repressive regimes with these international sports organizations. Nicole was right when she talked about the negative aspects of sports and politics, but there are also some good things. For example, Park Hang Su, the South Korean head coach of the Vietnamese men national football team, has received a state badge of honor for his accomplishment in his adopted home. Also, the Vietnamese government gave him the second class order of labor upon park at a ceremony at the Vietnam Football Federation headquarters. And this proves that sports can also help in politics and strengthen the relationship between two countries. Yeah, I think it's interesting how much movement there is in sports, particularly with coaches. So we can even see that domestically with the turnover in LSU coaches and how we always get a new one. And there's a lot of international exchange of coaches and players, which has created a pretty global community. So because of a lack of funding, we were not renewed for a fourth episode, unfortunately, but I hope that you enjoyed our last three podcasts and there will not be a next time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Gracias. Thank you. <laughs>